Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy, and cybersecurity. I'm Arj. Uh, I'm joined by Jordan. Hi, Jordan. It's uh, It's been a couple of weeks, uh, longer than normal. It has. We've both been sick, haven't we? And we're varying levels of better. So, you know, hopefully today will go all right. I hope so. I'm sure listeners will be able to hear the uh, lingering effects in, in both of our voices. But yeah, quite the... Quite the illness uh, has struck the podcast. Hopefully our brains are better. I'm not too foggy today, so. <laughs> so today um, we're going to go deep on TikTok, which will be fun. But um, first up for that, we're going to talk a little bit about facial recognition because there's been a bit of an update on that front. So obviously a few weeks ago, we discussed the, the furor over revelations in the media that Kmart, Bunnings, and the good guys were using facial recognition technology in their retail stores, uh, and that media coverage was on the back of um, a report by Choice. As I said, quite a bit of coverage, quite a bit of reaction from privacy advocates. We obviously covered it at length in on the podcast a few weeks ago and kind of looked more deeply into what was actually problematic about the technology and facial recognition more broadly. But it hasn't actually gone away by any stretch and there was a formal complaint made to the OAIC, which is the privacy regulator, by choice on the back of their reporting. Um, And finally, we've now heard from the OAIC itself um, and the OAIC has announced it's going to be opening an investigation into Bunnings and Kmart. Fairly brief statement, as they often do, they don't comment at length when they're in the course of an investigation. So that's all we know for now. But yeah, what did you make of all that? Yeah, again, we've talked about the issues, the facial recognition stuff in detail. The only thing I'd note on that is that it's interesting that the OAIC hasn't decided to open an investigation into the good guys. They're looking at Bunnings and Kmart, but they're still in this preliminary inquiries phase for the good guys. They say because good guys has paused their use of the technology for now. So Bunnings and Kmart, it seems, are continuing to use it and good guys have stopped. So the OIC sees that as perhaps a determining factor. I thought that was kind of surprising because for me, when you look at in detail about what each say, uh, Bunnings and Kmart both say they're only using facial recognition for loss prevention and store safety, whereas good guys' language is slightly broader. They say they're using it for managing and improving customer experience as well as safety and theft and stuff, which I think is quite a wider use case. I think there's a potential that that can include, you know, they're tracking people around stores to see how long they're spending where and you know, deciding where to put certain displays and whether someone's coming in and out multiple times and so on. All of this kind of behavior tracking in a way that I think is much more problematic than just like the Bunnings use case, which was like maintaining a ban list for people who've been banned from the store. So I thought that was surprising. That was kind of interesting that the OAIC's focusing on Bunnings and Kmart as opposed to the good guys, but that may change. This is all speculation. And preliminary. And preliminary, exactly. And we probably won't hear very much from the OAIC for a little while while they work through their investigation, but look forward to seeing where that lands. So, 
Moving straight on to TikTok, we've got a couple kind of angles that we wanted to talk about. I'm not sure how much time we've spent talking about TikTok on the pod. Not much. Probably not enough. Do you have it on your phone, Arch? <laughs> have you looked at it? I, I don't have it right now, but I have had it on my phone. And I don't remember having to sort of provide uh, much detail in the way of signing up to use it just to sort of browse. So, But I was just curious. And is incredibly addictive. Like, it took me no time at all to become addicted to it and to just be, like, sort of scrolling through. And very different experience because there's very little in the way of, I guess, self-directed curation. It was just things that were coming onto the feed and but that was enough to hook me and just keep going back to it. So, I don't have it on there now. I, I think I, I realised that it was not, not going to be for my... um longer-term betterment to have it on there, but um, yeah, it, it's fascinating. I had the same same experience, right? That algorithm quite quickly decided that I was into Dungeons & Dragons, computer games, cooking, dogs. It's like, wow, this, is a, this knows me quite well. Well done. So yeah, I thought it was... Yeah, anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about viral videos and filming in public. This really interesting story last week, I think, about a Melbourne woman who was filmed by a TikTok creator without her consent in a shopping centre food court. It's part of this kind of viral, random acts of kindness trope. Um, So what happens in the video is that this guy asks her to hold a bunch of flowers for him while he takes his jacket off, and then he just walks off and leaves the woman with the flowers. And what we're supposed to perceive is that the woman was sad and lonely and feels like wonderful because this guy has given her a bunch of flowers and you know this video has gone viral there's a million like it on the internet but this particular one got 57 million plus views heaps of comments saying oh it really touched me you know people thought it was really moving and meaningful and beautiful and then you hear from the woman who you know, was really unhappy and really felt like her privacy was violated and did not appreciate being covertly filmed. You know, she very much feels like her privacy has been violated. This guy's making money and making a profession out of doing this stuff. And she's feel like she's been jumped on and put in the public spotlight without any consent. It was a really fascinating story because there were so many elements to it. I mean, one is just the commentary about the fact that this is a sort of somewhat disingenuous act of kindness, because as you say, it's such a trend now on platforms like TikTok and, you know, people have made social media brands and followings out of doing this kind of stuff. And I don't know, like part of me is like, it's disingenuous. The other part, like there was some examples I was looking up in prep for our discussion and just there was one particular person who goes around paying grocery bills for people you know, at the point of sale and, you know, it's it's disingenuous, but then it's like, is this someone who's, you know, using a, a platform like a TikTok towards a sort of positive end? Like if, you know, he gets something back from the following and the brand that he builds that allows him to then go off and kind of, you know, make these payments, is that bad? So there's kind of that part of it. But then as you say, there's this whole um, question around like the privacy of this woman and, it was fascinating to see how quickly that was dealt with in the coverage. Even the person who gave her the flowers and, and filmed the video very quickly dispatched that concern by saying, well, it was in a public place, so I actually didn't need to get any consent. And it was just sort of dealt with very quickly on the basis of that. But what was interesting to me was actually the evolution of her response, because 
you know, there was the part of it that happened in the interaction. And so, you know, what you see on the camera and the video is probably her being quite nice and diplomatic in the first instance about receiving the flowers. The media coverage then talks about the fact that she sort of realized later on that, okay, there was some filming going on. And at that point kind of said, look, take your flowers. Like, I actually don't want the hassle of carrying these home. But it didn't, it didn't get the sense that she was particularly mortified in that moment. But then later on, a, a friend or a family member said, hey, you've, you've gone viral. There's this video of you getting these flowers and it's got this kind of emotional music over the top of it and watch this. That was when it clicked for her and she felt really, uh, you know, in her words, she felt dehumanized and felt really kind of patronized by what had played out. And to me, that was really interesting to see how that evolved for her and also it brought me back to something you have said in the past about, you know, where privacy bites for us and sometimes it's around a question almost often of power. And it's like she, in in the sort of later stages of that journey, the, her power to define herself, in you know, as a person was completely taken away from her. Some guy films a video, posts it onto his social media account, goes viral. Yes, it was filmed in public. Yes, technically he didn't have to get any consent from her. But in the bigger scheme of things, she had no control over her image, which, as it was painted, was her being this kind of quite forlorn figure that was cheered up just by an act of a stranger giving her flowers. We know nothing about her. We, she might be quite a strong-willed woman. She might have an incredible social network. She might. We don't know anything, but that was how she was defined for no choice and with no authority or agency of her own. And that was where the privacy violation to me seemed to click in. This is why I love this story so much, right? Because it's it's just such a good example of where we have this really limited legal concept of what we're protecting and what we're not in privacy. And it's just so inadequate to this situation, which has so many more nuanced and more complex ideas of privacy that are intrinsic to it, right? So what you've just described, this kind of idea of her privacy being violated because her ability to self-determine, ability to present the character, the person, the the personality that she wants to in the world just being ripped away from her and being externally defined in this viral video. There's also just like the physical privacy of, you know, like I don't care that she was in a public space, you know. She is having a quiet time, you know, sitting quietly by herself in a public space. That is a private setting, right? Like the there's this notion that if you are in public, if other people can see you, what you're doing is not private. And it's ridiculous. Of course it is. You know, it, it might not be secret. Other people can see you, sure. But that doesn't mean I don't have an interest in not being filmed or not being identified or not being accosted and handed flowers or whatever else. And that's kind of a privacy notion that I have this like bubble of kind of self-determination control both around my physical space as well as around my character and how I'm presented. There's no reason to think she is consented to be part of a public conversation. I don't know if that's the right word, but what what is the word for a, a meme or something that goes viral? She hasn't consented to be like you say, she's just gone and sat in a food court and is having a cup of coffee. That is a private moment. That's where this no privacy in public idea just falls apart, right? Like the idea that by walking outside of my front door, I consent to being in any content, any filming, any recording of me just because I'm out in public is kind of absurd. Like it makes some sense if you're like 
filming a streetscape and people are walking by and it would be impossible to get 20 different people's consent and the video's not about those people and so on. I get it in that context. But where you are, like, making this kind of reality social media TV content with unsuspecting passerbys, I think it's it's gross. There should be, there is, I think, a privacy interest there that needs to be protected, and it's demonstrated by the fact that this woman herself was offended and and upset, but then there's been a bunch of media coverage of people agreeing with her, right? The public reaction to this, generally, once we hear her side of the story, is that, yeah, this is absolutely outrageous, and, you know, leave the poor woman alone. Or at least ask her if she wants to participate, rather than just forcing it on her. I thought it was an interesting parallel or comparison to what we were talking about earlier around the facial recognition side of things as well because you know the privacy violation of that was very clear to people the idea that biometric information is being scanned and no meaningful consent was attained in in that i thought it was interesting that we've got another example here in almost like a similar retail context you know sort of a shopping center and a food court It didn't need facial recognition. It didn't need the capturing of biometric information in this case, but the privacy violation can still be so significant. You know, really kind of it goes to that sort of deeper question of like, what does it mean to have your privacy violated? What does it mean to be picked out of a crowd and identified or associated with other things without having the ability to, you know, have any influence over that? And you need to ask those deeper questions, right? Like, it's often quite trite, but the creepy test, you know, like, are people going to be comfortable with the thing that we're doing here? You need to ask that deeper question because rules of thumb, like, oh, it's public, we can see their face anyway, we're recording their face anyway on CCTV cameras, having a simple bright line test often doesn't work. You also need to ask the the moral, the ethical question, you know, and often the legal test doesn't work, right? Again, what this guy did is perfectly legal. It's just totally inappropriate. So still on TikTok, but a a slightly different focus. TikTok's been in the news quite a bit over the last few weeks around access to data about its users uh, from China. This probably kicked off initially in the US in kind of June and earlier this month. There was some coverage based on some leaked audio from internal TikTok meetings that essentially showed that uh, US user data was being repeatedly accessed from China. In the past, we've had any number of promises and assertions from TikTok saying, you know, all the data is is stored outside of China, it's stored in the US and it's stored in Singapore. But there's now been these kind of internal leaked documents and recordings that sort of talk about the fact that China-based employees are actually accessing US-based user data. And on the back of that, we also saw in Australia that the Australian uh, Shadow Cybersecurity Minister, James Patterson, wrote to TikTok asking some questions about who could access the data of Australian users. And TikTok, again, has responded saying that data can be accessed by its staff in China. So that's prompted a lot of coverage and a lot of concern about exactly what user data is being accessed by China and kind of the concerns around that. There's been talk about TikTok as a potential national security threat for years, right? There's been a range of parliamentary inquiries here in the UK and the US going back 2020, even before, I think, 
And we've had assurances from TikTok that the data is not stored in China. But that's kind of this disingenuous point there. You know, it doesn't matter where it's stored if there's engineers in China who can access the stuff, then, well, it may as well be stored in China because you're going to be able to, through Chinese national security laws, require that data to be pulled down or captured or, or moved off into other places that the Chinese government controls. Yeah, it's. I think you hear this in different contexts as well now, this focus a little bit more on where data is stored and data localization. You know, in a different way, you hear it from the likes of someone like an Amazon who face a lot of requests from companies around, please, you must store my data locally, or we, you know, now operate within a regime that requires us to store our customers' data locally. And, you know, Amazon will make the point sometimes that, sure, we'll do that, but that's not actually the, the main issue. Like, the focus on data localization can sometimes be counterproductive against what you're trying to achieve from a security perspective if data is not sufficiently secured and can be accessed from anywhere and around the world. You know, there's a parallel there in like what's going on here and think tanks like Aspie have made this point about TikTok specifically, which is that for all the assertions over time about where the data is stored, what matters most is can it be accessed in China and can it be accessed by the Chinese government, more to the point. And so that's what we're really getting at here in some of this coverage, which is that a lot of the data can be accessed by users in China and there's just I mean it didn't seem to me that there's necessarily like a smoking gun around like we have seen this kind of data being accessed by these people in China or that these requests have been made by the Chinese government but it's there's this opaqueness around it there's an opaqueness around TikTok saying some users in China can access data but it'll probably be in accordance with their job there's an opaqueness around and this came out in some of the leaked recordings, but some of the tools that TikTok has in place to manage data flows within the company and within the platform, you've got internal users of TikTok saying, there are parts of this tool that we don't even understand why it exists, why these flows exist, or why these tools are doing what they're doing with the data. We can't understand what the purpose of it is. And so there's this whole sort of fog of like what actually is happening here and what is possible here. And I think that tends to be the concern around China and around its platforms more so than the US-based platforms is that there's this kind of view that, okay, there's a different kind of potential around data access from the government and what it might be used for than, than maybe the US-based platforms. It, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we just kind of assume, especially post-Snowden, we kind of just assume that the US government has access to more or less anything that an American tech company has. And I think that maybe the Snowden leaks kind of demonstrate some of those risks, right? How difficult it is to protect information held by a tech company from a motivated government of that jurisdiction, right? And it's things like tapping fiber optic cables between data centers, you know, like there's all this stuff that they can do even without the tech company's consent, but also they have a set of laws that just require these companies to hand over the data when it's been asked and, and require them not to tell anyone when that happens. Even Australia has laws on the books. Not only do they require data to be handed over, but, but they require um, tech companies when asked to build new capabilities to enable our spy agencies to get access to certain data. All of these countries have these access regimes. And so if you want to protect data from, say, the Chinese government, you kind of need to draw that wall very far away from anything that the Chinese government has control over. It's, it's going to be a very difficult 
task. And so, yeah, like you say, these reports suggest that it is very messy and given the power and the capabilities of a national government like China, then my sense is that I can't imagine you'd be keeping this data out of the hands of the Chinese government at all. I think the fascinating thing for me to watch was a little bit of the equivalence conversation in this story. There were two levels of it. One was, I think, what you're talking about, which is that, well, we have just as much access from governments in our part of the world, in, in inverted commas, gaining access to the data of social media platforms and their users and making these requests. So, you know, what's the difference? You know, like if China gets access... Is that different to our government's getting access? And then the other, I guess, equivalence was just more generally about TikTok as a platform and how much data it was collecting and what it can kind of infer about users and how that is probably not much different to what Facebook is already doing and how we already feel surveilled by all of these other platforms. So again, what's the difference? And so that's been interesting to watch play out. And I think on the first one, I think it is very much that sort of values distinction that we make and that particularly that I guess commentators in politics make about what the Chinese government deems as legitimate to do and procedurally fair to do in relation to what it sees as national security. I think that seems to be the difference, or at least, you know, the Chinese government have a much more aggressive view on those topics. And so, you know, TikTok is a, is a very useful tool for them. Yeah, there are kind of two lenses here about the interests or the things that we're trying to protect, right? Like, why are we concerned about China and TikTok? One is a national security concern, right? That, like, Chinese government is going to access this data and use it for like spying and national security kind of stuff that is a threat to the US, Australia, others. You know, that's based on the fact that TikTok collects a whole bunch of like really useful data for that perspective, you know, like biometrics, people's names and social graphs and contacts and face prints of a large chunk of the American Australian population. You know, it skews young, but there are a lot of politicians who use it. There are a lot of, you know, an increasing chunk of the population and having like nice, neat behavioral graphs and location data and facial templates for all these people is pretty useful. The other lens is looking at it from a privacy perspective, which is usually just focused on like ensuring that data going into other jurisdictions has equivalent protections. That's what like most jurisdictions, privacy laws, Australia, EU, others are focused on if you move data out of Australia, you've just got to make sure that it's at least equivalently protected to how it was here. And so, you know, moving data into China is potentially problematic because of these national security laws, because the data might be used for things that you couldn't do in Australia, which is kind of focused on protecting the individual, their privacy rights. So you've got, you know, national security, how does Chinese government having access to this data affect their geopolitical military intelligence type powers? And then from an individual perspective, what's happening to individuals' data, is that going to be equivalently protected? The first part of that, I think, is where things like Trump's executive order came out of, which was the concern that the Chinese Communist Party through TikTok would be able to build this profile of the American populace, but more specifically, potentially federal employees and people who work in government and these kind of dossiers that could then be leveraged in these kind of geopolitical ways, you know, from blackmail through to, you know, other forms of espionage. So the richness of the insights you'd get on a populace through TikTok is also becoming increasingly clear. You know, in some of the reading I was doing around this story, just getting a sense of how 
much more it's being used. So even I think in Australia, Facebook numerically still has many more users than TikTok, but users of TikTok use the app for like something like 24 hours a month compared to 17 hours a month for Facebook. So you've got just that much more interaction, much more sort of data, all of that stuff you're talking about, kind of that behavioral insight, the the building of much richer graphs being fed into TikTok. And it's often like quite surprising or unpredictable insights that can be drawn from this stuff. You know, when you have this volume of data about such a large chunk of the population, I mean, there was this great case of um, Drava data getting published Java's are like you know exercise running biking tracking app that you know you can publish your route to the web and they collate all this data about where people run and then recommend where you should run that public data exposed the locations of a bunch of like secret military bases because all the military people go out for their runs and track their stuff with Strava. And then, you know, you can, just things like that, that like initially, if a company like Strava was bought by or owned by a Chinese company, you might not immediately see the national security risk. It's like, yeah, cool. I don't care where people go running. But in fact, there can be these like surprising or unexpected intelligence type use cases. I guess the other element of concern around TikTok from a national security perspective, and it doesn't directly relate to any of these issues around data and how it's handled, but it's more in that information warfare type context where the concern is that if TikTok becomes the default way that Australians access information about the world, the fact that this platform is susceptible to interference from the Chinese government that could dictate what sort of things get on there, but more so what sort of things don't get on there. So if there's dissent or views that are counter to what the Chinese government would want to put out there, say about, I don't know, protests in Hong Kong or any other kind of political views, or, or even just political interference to sort of shape our own domestic conversations about topics by giving priority and emphasis to certain voices over others, that that's something that we're now sort of susceptible to because of the growing reliance on this as the platform of choice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. We've seen how significant a negative impact that profit-motivated US companies like Facebook can have on our democracy. Imagine if that was not just monetarily motivated, but like strategically driven to ferment dissent, have kind of negative to elections, negative to democratic structures, negative to social cohesion effects. That's a like slightly black mirror, but not totally implausible worry, I think. And for me, that hits home the most. That's the scariest one. Like, I'm less worried about the intelligence applications. I'm much more worried about like, okay, if we've got control over this algorithm that's feeding content to the youth of our nation or our whole nation, then, yeah, it gives you an amount of power that I am 100% not comfortable with. Like, it brings us back to our comments at the start of this chat about our own experiences with TikTok. It was just so, more than, you know, many platforms I've used, it was so easy just to fall back into a, like, a mode of, I'll let the platform tell me what to do, what to see. Like, the way it was geared up, there was no real sort of sense for me to sort of dictate my own experience or my own journey of the information I was going to see. It's just like, whatever the platform says, that's, a, you know, that's what I'm going to look at. So, yeah, I think that's pretty concerning. But um, on that scary note, I think we should uh, we should leave it there. Yeah, let's leave it there before we scare ourselves anymore. All right. Good to chat. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, thanks, Arch. Hope you feel better. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Talk again next week. All right. Bye.